Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. The war in Gaza and the Hamas attack that triggered it are often viewed through the lens of war crimes. This particular bombing described as a war crime. Housing militants in a hospital reported on as a war crime. But how exactly are these specific crimes defined and how subject to interpretation are they? Rather than relying on what we see online, we thought we'd bring you an expert. I sat down recently with someone who not only teaches about the laws of war, but he actually helped negotiate the definitions of war crimes for the International Criminal Court. This is not a conversation about who's right and who's wrong. It is a conversation about how militaries, states, and tribunals distinguish between legitimate acts of war and war crime. It seems everyone has become an expert in the laws of war, whether that's celebrities, athletes, or influencers. Today, we thought we'd hear from an actual expert on war and war crimes. We're joined remotely by Professor Mike Newton of Vanderbilt Law School. Professor, thank you for the time today. No, I appreciate your time. I'm here to deliver a a set of comments on the International Criminal Court. So this is like a perfect segue into today. Oh, that's right. I'm not reaching in in your office today, am I? No, sorry about that. (laughs) You are not a celebrity or a social media influencer? Uh, no. <laughs> I stay busy helping judges around the world and helping put the cases together for prosecution, although I did do one defense case in my life at the International Criminal Court. Most of my work has been spent either uh, really two prongs. One, well, three, actually. Because of my military background, a whole section of career advising commanders, things like rules of engagement, things like the real application of the law of war in a, in a battlefield context, operational context. That's the first part of the stool. Uh, as the ICRC would always tell us, the International Committee of the Red Cross, a two-legged stool falls over. So I happen to be one of those guys that has sort of three legs. One is the actual operational experience in the field with commanders uh, and NGOs grappling, grappling with these issues in real time. And then, of course, as you alluded to, a lot of counsel experience began as a prosecutor and lots of trial experience. But the the real depth of insight and technical experience for me uh, has come in the trial support role, uh, working to advise both U.S. policymakers, but also policymakers and judges around the world. So the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal, the Milosevic trial in Tadic and a bunch of others, Rwanda, Sierra Leone. I helped set up the Sierra Leone court, uh, the special court for Sierra Leone. Um, And then a whole bunch of work at domestic senses, helping Peru, helping Uganda, helping Bosnia-Herzegovina, now, of course, helping Ukraine. And and the issues are cross-cutting issues in terms of, and I hope we can talk about this, what is the law of war? How does it work? And how do we enforce it? And how do we understand it properly in a way that gives it consistency and objectivity across all battlefields and all cultures? That's really the challenge. First off, I can't overemphasize that you've actually played this role in real time 
advising uh, U.S. military on their obligations? Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we do. We go in the field where things are hard. Uh, you do the same thing in, a, in an advisory role with judges. Many a time I've been in smoke-filled chambers with judges and them wrestling with hard issues and then they go out in front of the cameras and, you know, NGOs, human rights NGOs are sitting out in the courtroom anxiously waiting for what's going to happen as our counsel, but they haven't seen the the really good faith way that judges have struggled in chambers um, and debated amongst themselves, trying to grapple with a lot of these difficult technical issues so that they can issue opinions that are reasoned and actually compliant with both the treaty norms, but also the customary international law norms. And this is one thing I really want to talk about is how this body of law actually works in practice. It's a harmonization of different sources of law in a very sophisticated way. And that's all great in theory until you're a judge trying to issue a reasoned opinion based on the actual evidence before you. This is the real challenge and this is what we do in the, in the real world. I guess maybe a good starting point is for most of recorded history, war was seen as legitimate way of resolving disputes and any actions that promoted your interests in that war were viewed as legitimate? Yes and no, actually. Good lawyerly answer. Uh, you know, yes, there was no hard body of law that had expressed prohibitions. Um, and that's true. That's why you saw slaughters, you saw rampant massacres, you saw mass rapes, you saw lots of things that today, even, in, even as late as World War II in Vietnam, the law has changed, the specific substantive law. But what you did see as early as recorded history, were informal rules evolving between participants to a conflict about how to constrain that conflict, what was appropriate. Um, and that really is the roots of the law of war. For example, the first roots of prisoner of war treatment, go back to the Greeks and Romans. Um, the, the, the beginnings of rules about how you handle occupation settings. You know, when you conquer a territory, think of Alexander the Great, who conquers Persia and lets people keep their religion and maintains the tax structures and does all the things that he did even in that day as a matter of practicality and comedy and pragmatism, I could trace the roots of specific pieces of the law of occupation back to those kinds of practices. So that's one of the really important points I think people need to understand is that the law of war is designed to be functional and practical and work in a real setting and add value in real time. And therefore it has a, a great deal of really common sense to it. Uh, if I'm in an occupation setting and I know that I'm going to get my sovereign territory back, I can't poison your wells just, just as you can't poison my wells because one day we're going to want that territory back. And so we want to try to preserve it. It's just one small example. So no, there hasn't been codified treaty law for that significant period of human history. And yet the, the roots of the laws of war go very, very deep in pragmatism and comedy. And there's one more piece. And here I should mention uh, King Gustavus Adolphus in the height of the Thirty Years' War, where what you referenced was commonplace, rampant massacres and rapes and pillaging, etc. The problem with that is it's not very disciplined. If you're Gustavus Adolphus, the Swedish king at the time, with the best army on the planet, you want to keep them disciplined, you want to keep them focused, you want to keep them doing what they're supposed to do. So he, he issues a code of conduct. 
and 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 parameters for how to be a military professional again the roots of modern treaty law everybody on the planet has probably heard of the geneva conventions some of them go back to king gustavus adolphus's rules that are issued as a as a as a manifestation of his authority to prescribe as long as you work for me and my army this is how i expect you to behave i love the the history aspect of this field of law there's actually something a little more specific called customary international law that you referenced what exactly and we'll get to treaties but what exactly is customary international law and at what point does it i suppose crystallize yeah the idea of customary international law is that it's uh, a set of principles or a set of actions that are almost universally agreed to by states and accepted as law and the the easy example is when the president of the United States lands in some country and they roll out a red carpet we say gee what a nice thing it's 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 a courtesy but nobody that i know would say oh that's legally required right cuz that's not customary international law because it's not accepted as law even if it's widely done so the identity the definition of a military target accepted around the world the idea that you can't target civilians in any context now we're going to have a lot of legal debates about who's a civilian and 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 what they can do to forfeit that otherwise protected status but the basic principle that you can never intentionally target civilians is embedded in a lot of treaties applicable to almost everybody but in the gaps uh law professors speak here lacuna the gaps the interstices um, is filled by customary international law in a way that the law of war then operates as, as a seamless seamless net that captures every participant. There's no gaps here. And there's an infinite permutation here. And that's what happens so that customary law blends with treaties, the Geneva Conventions and the Protocols and the Chemical Weapons Convention. When I teach this, the book of law of war is about five inches thick. But we're not going to ask soldiers or Marines to carry that around with them. They can't. So they have to have some normative set of principles that guide them day to day, and it can't be impossible to execute. Again, it's got to be pragmatic. That's what the law of war is about. It's about professionalism and, and constraining and also balancing, because if you had a set of rules that said, uh, here's the law of war, but it prevents you from actually fighting and winning a war, that would be stupid. And the basic principle is if you hear there's something in the law of war that you think, well, that's crazy, that doesn't sound right, it's probably not right. Maybe it's worth addressing, why do we need specific war crimes? Why wouldn't this type of behavior be covered by national law? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, how, how long do you have? <laughs> One of the beautiful things about the law of war, and I do, I do think it's a beautiful thing, and, we, and I, I do want to spend some time talking about the elements of crimes in the Rome Statute from 1998. Uh, we're doing the 25th anniversary of the, of the International Criminal Court this, this year, uh, or at least the signing of the statute. And the elements of crimes give you, in, a, in the official UN languages, the the acts, the conduct, the consequences, the circumstances, for the first time in human history, you have a template that can be extrapolated to every country around the world. And this is the beautiful thing about the laws of war, is that they, they infiltrate into national systems uh, 
but the word I use is they're, they're transposed from international law, from international systems. So, so I can go in Russian or Arabic and talk to any professional soldier and we share the same body of law. Now the question is, in your system, how do you charge that? How do you prove it? Uh, where does the jurisdictional lines break down? But the underlying law is exactly the same, and that's the beauty of this field. And to the extent that that a particular country is not enforcing that body of law, one of the other beauties of this field is that because you have what's called universal jurisdiction, if you violate the law of war in an international armed conflict, then every other country in the world has the right to prosecute you. So if your own country is not doing its job to properly enforce this body of law, and so war crimes law, very similar to the same provisions in the Genocide Convention uh, or the Torture Convention or all the terrorism conventions, you would put war crimes law, particularly grave breaches, at the top of that list because every country in the world. So it's, I would say it's a shared responsibility, both of the international system and other states, but the primary responsibility lies in that sovereign state, which makes total sense because military personnel are sent out on official missions on behalf of that sovereign state. The sovereign state is responsible for, for enforcing good order and discipline. And on the flip side, prosecuting and punishing and investigating those people who, who, who violate those norms. This is an important point, Professor, which is if a war crime is committed, uh, perhaps a, as part of an American operation, it wouldn't necessarily go anywhere past the United States if the United States looks into it, investigates, and prosecutes the crime. That's correct. That's correct. And that's the fundamental pillar upon which the International Criminal Court is set up. So the idea is that every country of the world shares this body of law and theoretically shares enforcement authority. But if the sovereign state is doing its job properly, there's no need for the international community or technically in Article 17 of the Rome Statute, the International Criminal Court to step in because it's being done and enforced. You actually helped to carve out these definitions of the elements of war crimes. Um, maybe you can explain that a little bit better. Oh, sure, sure. In Rome, when we were negotiating the Rome Statute, and you have to go back slightly further, you have to go back to Nuremberg, of course, the big international military tribunal after World War II. And, you know, Nuremberg was in its own way very controversial. On the one hand, you're prosecuting Nazi leaders, totally appropriate. Professor, that wasn't a foregone conclusion, I believe. Am I right that some including perhaps even Churchill, said just line them up and, and put them in front of a firing squad. Official British policy said they should not have a trial. They should just do that. He did say that. Um, others in the U.S. government simply said it was a high, they called it a high-grade lynching. Um, and, and the idea is that the politics of victorious allies superseded a fair trial with, with public evidence, etc. And the Americans and the Brits and the French went out of their way to demonstrate at Nuremberg a process that was fair, that was transparent, with defense counsel arguing vehemently and rules of evidence and, you know, examination and cross-examination and documents made. So it really was, as Robert Jackson said, um, an incredible tribute that power paid to reason. And it really was a good faith effort to try to do justice. 
The problem was it wasn't permanent. It was it was temporary. It was ad hoc, um, and it also didn't really advance the law in a, in war crimes terms. So that's why the International Criminal Court was needed, and the movement to start a permanent supranational court really began about the time of Nuremberg, no question, but didn't culminate until 1998. So you have the statute, and it's designed to bring together in one institution a permanent supranational This is the Rome statute. The Rome statute, yes, for the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Now, the trick is that you're, you're, you're harmonizing very different visions of law. The European system of inquisitorial civil law, very different than the American-British common law version. So you're harmonizing, and, and at that point, it's also useful to note that we had a lot of trial practice and a lot of cases and war crimes from the Yugoslavia process and the Rwanda tribunal and the Sierra Leone tribunal, etc., but that's what we're doing in the Rome Statute, is bringing together these systems. And for the first time ever, this laundry list of both treaty-based crimes, genocide, the, the genocide crimes in the ICC statute come straight out of the Genocide Convention. That's easy. The grave breach provisions are drawn straight from the 1949 Geneva Conventions. Easy. But then in the Rome Statute, we did something that was truly remarkable. We said, well, wait a minute, as a matter of customary international law and state practice, here's this other cluster of crimes that are absolutely committed in an international armed conflict. So that's sections 8.2b, long listing of crimes added, which had been previously recognized among states, no question, but then you would say codified, although I don't like the term, but, but specifically delineated in 8.2b. And then you had another provision from the Geneva Conventions, which is actually common Article 3 in the Geneva Conventions, but it's 8.2c. And then, revolutionary, you have this whole section of crimes in a non-international armed conflict. I mentioned the FARC. When the Colombian government is fighting um, rebel insurgents in the jungles, they're not a state actor. So that's what we call an armed conflict not of an international character. Um, Israel and Hamas today. Hamas is not a state, so there's a non-international conflict there. Um, and so there's, in the Rome Statute, a whole body of treaty law. Now, what's the role of the elements? The elements, for the first time in human history, detailed every detail in very particular terms that prosecutors have to prove to prove that crime, whether it's the crime against humanity of persecution or the war crime of attacking undefended places or using starvation as a method of warfare, all those things I can look and share all around the world with great precision what I have to prove. And that's why the elements are useful uh, because it's this harmonization. For example, some elements will simply say, you attacked a target that wasn't a military objective. And they don't define military objective per se or military necessity or the term protected person, we have to look to broader state practice and customary international law to define those things. But now, but we know, because of the elements, you've got to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt in order to secure a conviction. It's a beautiful thing, because, the, because it gives you this continuity across all countries and across all contexts.
we're in for a treat because to to really get into the laws of war and to discuss what laws uh, what war crimes are, you know, I can't imagine a better guess than someone who actually helped to to define those terms. I'd love to touch on a couple of points that you mentioned. I guess first off, the Rome Statute. You know, we should clarify that's what set up the International Criminal Court, but not every country is fully signed on as a ratifier of the Rome Statute. Uh, maybe you could speak to that. Well, the Rome Statute is a treaty court, right? Unlike other tribunals that were set up, Rwanda, Yugoslavia, Sierra Leone, in some ways, uh, the Lebanon Tribunal, set up by the Security Council under UN auspices, a whole separate line of legal authorities, the Rome Statute is a treaty court, which today has less than half the world's population within its umbrella. But remember, it operates parallel to all these national systems, each of whom has treaty obligations from the Geneva Conventions to enforce the law. Um, so it, it's not the only solution. So jurisdiction in the, in, in the, among those states, they're called states parties, flows from two sources. When I ratify the treaty, all the European NATO allies have ratified their members of the Rome Statute International Criminal Court. So when they ratify the treaty, what they're saying is you have jurisdiction over both our nationals and any crimes committed on our territory. Very straightforward. But that doesn't mean at all that they've simply pushed aside the, the, the legitimate appropriate authorities of domestic officials. This is Article 17. It's called the principle of complementarity or admissibility. The idea is, and the treaty says this, that domestic systems have first priority. The Rome Statute is only the court of last resort, and you can see the model. It's designed to work in harmony with domestic systems. Sometimes it's sharing evidence, sometimes it's sharing witnesses, or building cases. Ukraine today is busy building cases and prosecuting them in their own system, but where appropriate, when they have requests from The Hague, they're also sharing evidence with the prosecutors in The Hague, and vice versa. Uh, the International Criminal Court has an office in Kiev today. I think the last I checked with 42 people down there investigating and working and collecting evidence, oftentimes with the assistance of Ukrainian officials. Ukraine can do that even though they're not a state party because they consent to it. That's the idea. It's a consent-based court. Ukraine is not a party to the Rome Statute? No, they're not. They have consented as have other states, and Uganda did the same thing in the early days, they've consented to jurisdiction. And when you do that, what you're really saying is, I accept all of these treaty rights and these treaty duties, even though I'm not going to ratify the treaty yet. In my personal opinion, I think they should, because if they want to be in the European Union, they're going to have to ratify the Rome Statute. So it becomes, and this is an important sort of subtext in the war crimes field, that's a political statement and has political impact. And yet, at its core, it's a purely legal act because you now have a treaty-based duty once you ratify that treaty to share evidence, to cooperate, you know, to prosecute. Um, and, and the Geneva Conventions don't cease to exist either. The Geneva Conventions have this beautiful language, just like the Terrorism Conventions and the Genocide Convention, to prosecute or extradite. If I don't prosecute that person under my own rules, I have the duty to send that person, that war criminal, to some other state upon their request. 
And that's what the Rome Statute, it's designed to work in harmony with other domestic systems. Today, we're going we're gonna to speak a little bit more in detail about what's uh, been happening in, in Israel and Gaza. We're both sitting in the United States. My understanding is that both the United States and Israel signed but did not ratify the, the Rome Statute. Does that mean that these law of war definitions don't apply to them? Well, it depends on the treaty-based duty does not apply. Um, and there's sort of a lot of technical reasons why we signed and then reverse signature. Um, it's, it's often incorrectly called unsigning. There's no such thing as unsigning a treaty. What we did was, along with the Israelis, we said, and this is, by the way, let me be clear, a totally bipartisan issue. There's no president. When President Clinton signed the treaty, if you go back and look at his signing statement, he said, this treaty is fundamentally flawed. Right. We will not advance it for full Senate advice and consent until we're satisfied that we've remedied the fundamental flaws. That's President Bill Clinton. And then on a bipartisan basis, very wide bipartisan majorities in the Congress, um, we inched towards some support for the court, which is perfectly lawful. But it's, it's very difficult to see a groundswell of support from either party or, frankly, the American people to ratify the Rome Statute. And the reason is very simple, because we do it as well or better than anybody in the world. Our argument is that we don't need it, and, and ratifying that statute for us would expose us to the fear of politicized persecution. Um, and, and let me be very pointed about this. What we're really saying, the United States and the Israelis, um, I think other countries have their own reasons for not signing, which are different from ours. But for us and the Israelis, the argument is very simple. Um, the treaty says, in this complementarity principle, that domestic states get the first crack. And oh, by the way, let's be clear, you don't actually have to prosecute. You have to do good faith investigations. You have to apply the law correctly. And if there's a good faith decision not to prosecute, that satisfies the criteria of the Rome Statute. And the language of the treaty says you're unwilling or unable genuinely to enforce the law, right? So and I'll give you an easy example. You may remember the bombing of the hospital in Kunduz. Uh, when American warplanes bombed the hospital in Kunduz, you can look on the internet, you can Google it and find the full investigation and full detailed accounting of why that happened and what happened. And at the end of that process, and in real time, everybody was saying around the world, all the op-eds, that's a war crime, that's a war crime. The Americans intentionally attacked the hospital. Look at the investigation. We made a full investigation. It's transparent. It's public. They decided not to prosecute because there really wasn't a prosecutable offense within the meaning of the law of war. That satisfies the Rome Statute. For the Americans on both parties and for the Israelis, there's, there's not a belief that the court would actually respect those good faith decisions. And that's, that's the, the most technically lawyerly account of that. I also think the domestic politics got in the way in both countries in lots of ways. So these are, these are political decisions as much as they are legal decisions. Professor, I wanted to, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the bombing of the hospital in Kanduz. What was the, was it a, a claim of mistake? Yes. And, and more importantly, it's not just a claim. Here's the evidence. Here's the real-time radio transactions. Here's the, what was actually going on in real time. 
we saw this and and one of the quick runner the, and and the other thing i think is a really good faith effort to fix the problem find the problem and fix the problem um, and in the Kunduz case in afghanistan uh, very simple problem they had identified it they had the records at operational headquarters that that was a hospital and somehow in the in the computerized targeting system that thing that building was not identified as a hospital so the only failsafe was the fact that either you call somebody in real time or you look down and there are red crosses and medical symbols painted on the roof and in that setting like others they were taking fire and so they had they had an absolute lawful right to defend themselves right to life right uh, that's what we do in a war we shoot they shoot vice versa and so it's just a tragic set of mistakes and this is the real essence of a, of a really detailed war crimes investigation is to know the law to know who you can properly target and when you can target them and how you can target them and all of your other range of duties which i can talk about if you want it's not just the basics there's a whole other collateral set of really important affirmative duties that you have in using force and you put together this mosaic of what actually happened and then you make a decision you know we prosecuted a bunch of people for abu Ghraib, for example because those were absolute war crimes and we prosecuted them in other settings we've chosen not to prosecute because it either didn't fit the criteria or if we thought it did remember basic human rights law and the law of war you're innocent until proven guilty. The prosecutor bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you just have to get very technical in getting at what exactly the law requires and exactly how it was violated. Maybe it's worth just mentioning that if you're engaged in a war or a military action, mistakes will be made. And not every mistake is a war crime no question about that. Um, here I quote a famous British general, Ian Hamilton, very famous, very well regarded uh, until Gallipoli when they didn't conduct a great operation and they lost. In his later work describing, it was sort of a history, he said, on the day of battle, the truth lies naked on the battlefield. The following day, she has gotten up and put on her uniform, which is especially true in terms of parties trying to shape perceptions now in an interconnected, instantaneous social media world. And so anytime you see, you know, a snippet of YouTube, you may watch 10 seconds and somebody says that's the war crime, always ask the question, well, what else is going on contextually? What are we not seeing? Or what are we not hearing? Or what radio transmissions are we not hearing? There's always a much richer context. And the law of war, as you intimated, is designed to be, and I said this earlier, a pragmatic, functional body of law. It's not strict liability because it has to work in the real world in the middle of a battlefield. And it has to work in a way that your professional obligations are achievable and feasible. Because that's why you're in a war, is to conduct it, but conduct it lawfully. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, in, in urban areas in Gaza, Israeli forces have a duty to warn civilians. And they have a whole array of techniques that they've more or less perfected through the years of how to warn civilians. The law says you have to provide an effective warning. So the technical thing is what, is it, what does it mean to have an effective warning? We have a lot of debate about that. But then it says when circumstances permit. 
there's a realm of discretion there and and but remember the backdrop is we're trying to make people operate in good faith so you can't just assume that circumstances never permit you have to make that determination i'm imagining two situations one the israelis are trying to target let's say an important hamas leader who's about to launch an attack on israel so there under this hypothetical there is some eminence there's the fact that if you then give a warning, the person is likely not going to stick around for the attack. That might be an example where a warning couldn't be given. Whereas if you're trying to simply destroy an airfield because you don't want them to be able to launch um, some type of aircraft, uh, there you might be able to give a warning. All kinds of variations. I mean, the Israelis in Gaza have given warnings and literally watched what they know to be Hamas terrorists commingled with civilians evacuating an area. But they've done that, and in essence, a trade-off, some degradation of the military efficiency in pursuit of the larger goal of protecting the civilian population. And the thing to understand is that the law of war is additive. You can't just pick out one little snippet of rule and follow that piece of rule to the exclusion of everything else. So the duty to war operates right alongside the definition of what is a proper military objective. If I'm targeting something from the outset that I know is not a proper military objective, that's a war crime, no matter what I do or how I do it. Um, if I don't have a valid military necessity, technically defined in the law to do it, that's a war crime, no matter how I do it. Um, and so the, the other parallel duty here is the duty absolutely incumbent upon the attacker and the defender, I would add, to take all feasible measures to minimize or eliminate damage to civilians. That's why Hamas or any other non-state actor commits a war crime by intentionally putting military targets near civilian areas. There's an affirmative duty to disaggregate those because you have the duty to do what's possible or feasible to protect the civilians. And that's the point here is that the law cuts across both sides all the time in every way. Professor, can I walk through some some questions specific to the Israel-Gaza situation and get your thoughts on how they relate to war crimes and the laws of war? Sure, although I'll tell you, there's nothing new in this conflict. If you give me an example of human shields, I could go back to dozens of prior examples. So, you know, there's a tendency to say, oh, we're seeing things we've never seen. No, the law here evolves in, in the context of real-world situations. So for everything that you're seeing in Hamas and Gaza, their previous examples, whether it's Sierra Leone or World War II or partisans fighting in Yugoslavia or you name it, lots and lots of historical examples here. And the point is that the law is never perfect either, right? The law adapts to changing technology and changing conditions, but, but always lags real world events. So my question in Gaza will be, have we uncovered some wrinkle that we don't have some legal rule or premise that suitably addresses, and if so, do we need new law? My instinct is probably not. We're probably not going to see anything that we don't already have adequate law to deal with. The question is applying that law in good faith to try to get at what's both legally required, but also pragmatically sensible. What I'd love to do is, as well is to help dig a little bit below the surface. We, we hear war crime uh, regularly as, I don't know, almost a colloquialism. I'd rather talk with you a little bit to get to a better understanding of 
where war crimes are being committed and how war crimes or actions that could be war crimes are judged. Sure. Maybe we can start with the the attack on Israel. And I guess a good foundation, you alluded to it previously, but can Hamas, a non-state actor, can they even commit a war crime? Yeah, that's a really important distinction because you have to understand from the start what body of law applies and to whom does it apply and how does it apply. So the basic rule is uh, what's called combatant immunity. The idea is that if I'm a combatant operating on behalf of a state, it, it's immaterial how the war got started. So for example, German soldiers in occupied Poland, illegal war to start with, or Russian soldiers in, in Ukraine today, um, they're not war criminals just because the war was begun with no proper basis under international law. They're war criminals, a judge, because of what they do and how they do it. That's the first point. But the second th important thing is, since you ask about Hamas or Sendero Luminoso and, and so many other groups, is that combatant immunity only flows from the sovereign authority of a state. Very straightforward proposition that combatants have immunity from things lawfully done during an armed conflict. And it makes sense. There's a fundamental trade-off here in terms of human rights because combatants can kill people and blow things up. Think Audie Murphy during World War II. We pin lots of medals on those people. But by the flip side, because you're a combatant, you can be targeted at any point, at any time. I mean, the classic example in World War II was General Rommel was home when the D-Day invasion happened. Could the Allies have bombed his house and killed him, even though he was long ways away from the battlefield? And the answer is very simple. Yes, yes because he was a combatant, because he was serving the authority of the state. So the important point is that status-based targeting. Okay, So in, unless you make the linkage, and the same thing could be said of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or the Taliban, unless you make the linkage to a state, they do not have combatant immunity. But they do have some limited subset of rights uh, or obligations under the laws of war. So that's the important point, is that everything they do is presumed to be criminal under one body of law or the other because they don't have the affirmative right as combatants to wage conflict in the first place. You know, and if that were true, could you imagine an ISIS person saying, well, we hit the Pentagon on 9-11 and the Pentagon was a military target and it had lots of military practitioners in there. Therefore, that was lawful and you can't prosecute us because that would have been lawful if we had been combatants fighting on behalf of a nation state. And we say, no, thank you very much. Uh, that's that's criminal conduct in violation of the laws of war. So that's the first thing. They don't get combatant immunity. But here's the power of customary international law, that what they are is what's called civilians directly participating in conflict. So you can't target them based on status. You have to target them or subject them to the rules based on conduct, what they're doing. Israel can't treat Hamas members or Hamas militant uh, wing as if they're soldiers. In practice, they do. Uh, but there's some odd technical reasons for that. One is a ruling from the Israeli Supreme Court acting as the High Court of Justice. Technically, they're what's called either terrorists or civilians directly participating in hostilities. 
Um, and so there's this odd, in the Israeli context particularly, um, this odd juxtaposition of different bodies of law. You have an absolute right to use force to protect your civilian population. But that's the law of self-defense, right? That's what we would call use ad bellum law. That's what gives you that right. Um, distinct, of course, from the law of war. The law of war does not give you the lawful right to do anything you want in the middle of an armed conflict and say, ah, well, it's the necessities of war. No, the law of war operates from the ground up to constrain you. So in practice, they treat them as if they were combatants, um, but they're actually technically civilians directly participating in hostilities based on conduct. I won't go into too much detail on on, on what happened on October 7th, but many of the crimes that were committed were obvious, terrible crimes under Israeli law, including murder, rape, assault. Is there additional gravitas to call those war crimes as well? Is there any reason why they should be considered war crimes rather than acts of terrorism or mass violence? Oh, absolutely, in my view. Um, but remember, I have to be careful how I say it. I say I do war crimes, and that doesn't sound right. What I do is I prosecute war crimes. So I think we have a duty under international law to call things what they are. If it's a crime against humanity, we call it what it is because that allows us then to properly prosecute it based on the correct body of law, right? So the labels don't matter in the criminal sense, but they absolutely matter in the political sense and in the emotive sense. And as we've seen in other contexts, they also have a huge amount of symbolic value. If I go to the mothers of Srebrenica and I say to them that the, what happened at Srebrenica was genocide, it, it's very different from saying, oh, it was just murder. It was just a random set of murders. There's another sort of a technical distinction here in that the law of war does apply. Remember that distinction between an international armed conflict that's conducted between two states and a whole body of law. And then the other, it's like a waterfall. The, the gradation of that is an armed conflict between a state and a non-state actor. The law of war absolutely applies to that setting because there's sustained violence, um, it's organized, it's planned, and not just in Hamas, but in other settings as well, with insurgents and non-state actors. That's what makes it an armed conflict to which the body of law of war applies as distinct from ordinary, just regular assault, right? It's a war crime because you're in a context where there's a sustained level of violence, and the Israeli Supreme Court has said this for a very long period of time. We're in an armed conflict with with non-state actors is the way they would say it. Same thing the United States said in Afghanistan against the Taliban. In this case, it seems a little bit even more vague because non-state actors, but maybe semi-autonomous state actors? Uh, well, I mean, remember that the basic principle of so is sovereignty. The Palestinian Authority was created, which is a very important historical act, by the way. In the Oslo Accords, until the Oslo Accords, you never had an authoritative political body empowered to speak or negotiate self-determination on behalf of uh, Arab residents in that area. It's a creation of the Oslo Accords in the context of the Palestinian Authority. 
Hamas is not in the Palestinian, not in the Oslo Accords. Right. It's a non-state insurgent group that arises because of its own terrorist ideology. So the trick is this, and this is really important. I want people to understand this. They have no lawful right to conduct hostilities from the get-go. Why? Because they don't have combatant immunity. If you capture a Hamas operative, they are not a prisoner of war. Now, you may treat them as if they were a prisoner of war. You may give them all the same, you know, if you were sitting in a spaceship and watching how they're treated, hmm. they might get all exactly the same things. But legally, they're not a prisoner of war. That's why every act they committed is criminal under either the law of war or domestic law. They have no scope of proper combatant immunity. Now, from the Palestinian side, Hamas would say, well, that's not fair. Why should the state get combatant immunity and the lawful right under international law to conduct hostilities against us, and we don't get that same benefit? And the answer is very simple, because you don't represent a sovereign state. It's just, that's the law, whether they like it or not. That's why uh, all the terrorism treaties say terrorism, and I'll quote this, terrorism in all its forms and all its manifestations is unjustifiable and criminal. And then in the various formulations, it'll say irrespective of political, racial, ideological, philosophical motivations. So that's the trick, is that you're, you're absolutely covered by the law of war because you have unlawfully chosen to participate in, in an armed conflict. We could spend the entire time talking about what happened on October 7th, but I, I want to get to uh, the Israeli military incursion in Gaza. But on October 7th, there were a few things that just jumped out as the crimes that are enumerated under laws for. Would you be able to list off a few quickly, or, or maybe I could list them quickly? You mean just on October 7th, focus there? Just on October 7th, yeah. Oh, kidnapping is never lawful under the law of war. And the technical distinction is if I have a combatant and I capture them, there's now a body of law that applies to that person. So kidnapping civilians is always a war crime and, and, and to be clear, also a violation of fundamental human rights law. That's the thing people misunderstand is that human rights, it's a very different body of law with very different presumptions and a whole thicket of different rules, a constellation of different rules, but at its core, the law of war is protecting exactly the same values, the right to life. I can't kill everybody I want to. I can only kill people when I have a lawful basis of killing someone and depriving them of their right to life. Kidnapping, um, obviously all the crimes of sexual violence, horrendous crimes of sexual violence against civilians, never permissible in any context, under any body of law. So here the only question is, does the law of war apply in addition to Israeli domestic law, in addition to human rights law? And the answer is clearly yes. So those are war crimes. And this is an important sort of distinction. Human rights law says that the state can only do something when it has an affirmative authority to do it. Law of war is exactly the opposite. Law of war says, here's the set of prohibitions, but because you have combatant immunity or the right to conduct a conflict, what we're going to do is to say, here are the outer boundaries of prohibited conduct. And then we're going to enforce those boundaries rigidly with, with, with professionalism. I want to talk a little bit about Israel's actions in Gaza. I guess, first off, Israel declared a state of war. Can you declare a state of war against 
a non-state actor? Sure, because it's a non-international armed conflict. There is this odd formulation in what's called the Israeli targeted killings case. It's the Israeli version of drone strikes. It's an old case. It's not recent law. So it wasn't just invented for this context. What the Israeli Supreme Court said was that, and if you go back to Guantanamo, this phrase should sound pretty resonant in the, in the first Bush administration. The Israeli Supreme Court said that there's no such thing as an unlawful combatant or an unlawful belligerent. Very technically, because those terms are defined by international law. So it's kind of an oxymoron. If you're a combatant, you're a combatant because international law grants you that status as an objective matter of fact-based determination. So logically, if international law grants you combatant status, it's an oxymoron to say you're an unlawful combatant or an illegal participant, right? So that was the Israeli government position. Is it terrorists or unlawful combatants? The Israeli Supreme Court said no. What they are, and then they use the treaty language, drawn from the 1977 protocols. They're civilians directly participating in hostility. So you see the switch? Yeah. You've transitioned from targeting people based on status, who they are or who they represent, you're a German soldier or a Russian soldier or an American Marine, into conduct-based status, civilians directly participating. And the law says, for such time as they are participating. So there's a lot of debate about how I renounce that status, how I reclaim, because you see, you're, you're, it depends on where you say the word. You're a civilian, say the Europeans, who happens to be directly participating in hostilities. Um, the Americans and the Brits and the Israelis take a much more, you could say, aggressive, encompassing view of the law. They say, yeah, you're a civilian who's directly participating in hostilities, right? We just put the, the emphasis on the different parts of it. And so I'll give you just an easy example of what that means. There's a big debate about when that status, because remember, I can actually, under the law of war, target civilians who are directly participating in hostilities. And it does not count as the war crime of intentionally attacking civilians. Why? Because you're directly participating in hostilities. No question. The harder question is, when... Does that status change? When do you revert back to being a real civilian and therefore reclaim that whole body of protections? It seems very complicated. It is complicated. That's why we have to, in the field, as practicing attorneys, give very clear guidance to the IDF soldiers engaging in street-to-street -street fighting. If you see this, don't target it. If you see this, you may target it. Very clear very clear instructions. And we also, the Israelis do something that I wished we did. Uh, and I would commend this to every other government in the world. The Israelis have a separate military command that reports directly to the army chief of staff. So you publish these rules of engagement and the standards that you expect them to comply. This separate command on the battlefield has its own vehicles and its own logistics and its own command structure. And its job is to go where there are allegations of wrongdoing and collect the facts, collect the evidence. And in fact, that's so important that Israeli soldiers or airmen or whoever must cooperate. They, they, they cannot invoke a right to silence against that process. Oh, wow. Right? That's important because you're trying to report directly to the chief of staff and say, what are we doing wrong? How do we learn from this? How do we correct these deficiencies? And, and they do it in real time. It takes us 
in the case of the Kunduz investigation or other investigations, months and months and months and months and months to do our full-blown, you know, administrative investigations. I wish we were much faster and leaner in doing it in real time, both to learn the lessons and improve targeting, but also to ensure compliance and discipline. Because remember... And to gather evidence while it's there. That's right. The commander is not out there. He's relying on the discipline and the professionalism, or she is relying on the professionalism and the training and the character and the law-abiding nature of those forces to follow the law. If you go back a great piece of history, people should read General Petraeus's order when he took over as, as ISAF in, in Afghanistan. He says, we're the Americans, we're the allies, here are the rules we're going to follow. We follow the laws of war. We get there first with the truth, is what he said. That means if you see an allegation, you report it, and you investigate it, and you document it. That's a non-negotiable duty. One of the claims of war crimes against Israel that's been the most um, common, I suppose, is targeting civilians. First off, what is the actual law on targeting civilians, and what would you, how would you assess that claim? Well, like all areas, complicated. Give me a couple of minutes to explain it. I'll try to do it. I'm going to start my watch. Two minutes and 45 seconds, which is record time. Number one, you never intentionally target civilians, ever. The civilians are not the target, because if they are, that's a war crime. That's why it's so convenient for Hamas to come in in the media and maybe Hamas supporters and say, well, the Israelis are engaged in indiscriminate bombing, indiscriminate targeting. I don't believe that, because I've worked with the Israelis. They know it's a war crime to intentionally target civilians. So I don't believe they're intentionally targeting civilians. What they are allowed to do is to always direct their activities at all times and all places against lawful military targets, meaning, in this context, civilians directly participating in hostilities, or the, the facilities, the bomb-making factories. On October 7th, you saw them flying in these little paragliders. If I can find the place where those things are being built, I bomb it. If I can find the place where the, the pipe bombs are being built, I bomb it. Or the rockets are being fired, I bomb it, right? Because that's a necessary component. It's a lawful military objective, etc. cetera. Um, but remember, as I said, all of these parallel duties operate in a conjunctive way. I still have the duty to warn civilians when circumstances permit, which they're doing, not always perfectly. Uh, I still have the duty... To, to take all feasible measures to minimize or eliminate civilian damage. So that means I might change the angle of attack of a weapon. I might choose a different weapon. I might, I might issue a warning and give a certain amount of time based on this particular weapon. And then while that time period is going and I've warned civilians, change to a different weapon because it was feasible, it was pragmatic, it was achievable. Um, and then lastly, what well, I think what you were alluding to is the rule of proportionality, uh, which looks like you're targeting civilians because some civilians are dying or being injured. But again, the rule of law here is, is designed to be a pragmatic rule. I wrote a whole book on this, so I won't describe the whole book. But the idea is that you can never, and I'll quote the language, intentionally launch an attack in the knowledge, so it's an intentional thing, and I'm saying, I know I'm going to kill civilians, and I want to kill them. I can never intentionally launch an attack in the knowledge. Doesn't mean it might not be accidental or unintended or, you know, a, a, an easy example. When Hamas was firing rockets 
from the parking lot of that hospital at Al-Shifa, and the rocket veered off course and landed in the parking lot and killed civilians, that's not a war crime because they weren't trying to target the civilians. They weren't intentionally launching the attack against those protected civilians. It's a tragic accident. So the crime is proportionality, intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause damage. And here there's this really nifty combination of both treaty and custom. So what I'm about to tell you is part treaty language and part custom. Okay, so I can't intentionally launch an attack in the knowledge that that attack will cause damage to civilian lives or civilian property, or now we've added the environment, environment, so the environmental protection is built into this body of law. That's clearly excessive. You see clearly that room for discretion. Excessive. You see that room for yeah. good faith. Clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct and the key word is overall military advantage. And then another key word of discretion, anticipated. And I think I've got to make that calculus. I think for a lot of non-military, non-experts sitting at home on their couches, they may have a different understanding than the rule of law or what our military would, would understand to be the rules. And Maybe I could just give an example and you let me know if, if I'm wrong. If we, in saying the United States, if we have a viable target that we think is a dangerous threat to the United States and we have a legitimate uh, reason to, to use deadly force, we might take that action even knowing that 10, 15, 20 civilians could be killed in that process. Well, in the, in the proportionality analysis, and by the way, this is very, in our practice and in NATO practice and in Israeli practice, these are very fine-grained computer algorithms. You can map out on a battlefield, as long as you have the intelligence and the information, pretty, good, pretty high degree of certainty what you're going to do. The uncertainty comes from not knowing exactly what's in that target. And I'll give you an easy example from the Gulf War. First Gulf War, we hit what was an Iraqi command and control center, no question. What we didn't know was that five layers below that, Iraqi officials had collected their families. So there were a lot of civilians below that, which would have changed the proportionality analysis. But we didn't know that. So that's why it says anticipated. So you really do have the duty to try to collect all the information you can, to try to make the most well-reasoned decision that you can. And then in military practice commonly, and I do think this is one of the effects of Afghanistan, that long-term 20-year insurgency in Afghanistan, even if you could lawfully take that out, in the counterinsurgency context, we've tended to err much more on the side of not making that strike, finding another way to do it. Or there have even been instances of rules of engagement where some senior commander or political official said, even if we think you could do that with an airstrike, we're not going to authorize it because we want eyes on the ground in real time. Nothing in the law of war actually requires that. As long as you've tried to apply the proportionality principle in good faith, and yet what we see time after time after time is going above and beyond what the law actually requires, to try to do things in good faith and try to ameliorate civilian casualties and civilian damage. Because you no know, war is permanent. Even this one, this is not a permanent war. And I mean that both in the narrow Hamas-Israel context, but also 
the Palestinians at some point have to settle for a political viable deal on the table. And at, on the flip side, the Israelis at some point, if they ever want to live in peace and harmony and have a secure democracy in the, in the Middle East, they have to go back to the deal that Prime Minister Omar put on the table or something like it. And at the time, you didn't have political leaders on both sides willing to make that deal. You won't have peace until somebody makes that deal. This is such an important point, Professor, which is there's whether something is a war crime or not. And then beyond that, there's is it a smart military move? And those two things aren't perfectly overlapped. You might be able to strike way more targets than you would actually want to under the laws of war uh, because they're just it might not be good policy. It leads to all kinds of problems. And I'll tell you the one that's really close to my heart. As a commander and a leader, you have to be absolutely iron bound in complying with good order and discipline, complying with the law. So when you begin to erode that moral legal tenet, what you actually introduce is indiscipline and unprofessionalism. And that is, is the difference between a, a military that's governed by the laws of war and a gang or a mob or a the narcotraficantes don't care about the law of war because they have no discipline. They have no, the only thing they have is a moral code. But I guarantee you, if you violate their moral code, they're not going to give you a trial. The mob wouldn't give you a trial because they're not governed by law. And that's the important point is that the commanders here are operating in essentially uh, in pro forma on behalf of the entire world who has a has a collective duty and a collective interest in ensuring that the law of war is properly applied and properly interpreted because when when the russians violate the laws of war in ukraine and we don't say anything about it and we let them what we're actually doing is consenting to some watering down of the laws of war and if we let it happen there it begins to affect nato operations in the next nato operation and the point is that this is a rule of professionalism and discipline and teamwork. The other thing that's really important here is remember the duty to prosecute. What happens to a really integrated military unit? I mean, it's a perfectly honed, cohesive unit. All right. And let's say Joel decides to commit a war crime one day. And we try to talk him out of it. And then Joel goes and commits a war crime and then comes to us and says, hey, I need y'all's help to cover it up, to lie about it. And then the investigators start coming and peeling everybody off individually. What happens to good order and discipline? What happens to trust inside that unit? What happens to cohesion? It runs totally counter to the idea of an effective military unit that's cohesive and disciplined. And that's, that's why the law of war is so important. It's not just some textbook body of law that sits on a shelf somewhere. It's an essential tool that allows militaries around the world to do almost impossible things under almost impossible circumstances because it's a shared professional obligation, just like doctors have a Hippocratic oath all around the world. So too, professional militaries have that oath around the world. And that's the problem with Hamas. You can't pick and choose. You can't say, I respect the law unless it happens to be an Israeli and I can do anything. This is this set of moral uh, shifting moral duality. You cannot do that under the law. A quick pause for those listening for CLE credit. 
the code for this interview is 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. It sounds like you're making a case that the laws of war, they're not just tying the hands of military. They're actually strengthening strengthening the military by uh, by creating a more cohesive and resilient fighting force. Well, no question. But at the same time, they are tying the hands of the law of the military because there's a basic prohibition. You're not a mob. You're not some undisciplined group of teenagers out blowing things up just because you, it's fun. And it is fun to blow stuff up. I mean, we all did it when we were kids, right? Look at the 4th of July. Look at the kids blowing up stuff in the It's fun. Right. But that never gives you the right to harm civilians, ever. It never gives you the right. And, and it's kind of also almost common sense because at some point, if you've been wronged, there's a, there's a way to right that wrong or ameliorate that wrong. And, but you know in your heart of hearts, when you've gone beyond that, now it's about vengeance, it's about revenge, it's about lots of other extraneous motives. You know it's wrong. It's both morally wrong and legally wrong. And that's what the law of war does. Again, from the ground up, this balance of accomplishing the military mission in the most professional way possible while simultaneously protecting civilians. That's why the rule of human shields is so important. I can never on the defense side, intentionally place my military targets near civilian objects. Hamas does it. Saddam Hussein did it. The Serbians did it in the Balkans. It's commonly violated, but it's a war crime. It's a violation of the law. Why? Because I'm, through my own military actions, endangering civilians. Okay? This is why the Hamas control center under the hospital is a war crime. or a Because you're intentionally taking advantage of protected status and the, depending on the, the other side's compliance with the law of war to gain an unfair, asymmetric military advantage. Yeah, I want to talk about this, Professor, because this is, this is I think, both fascinating and one of the, the deepest tragedies of this conflict, which is how does, how does a, a, a military force engage against another force that doesn't follow the laws of war? And I guess, you know, I, I think I know the answer, but why don't we get on the table? Does one party's uh, breach of the laws of war, does, does one war crime justify another? Yeah, and the simple answer is no, never. Independent bodies of law, and the fact is that it's about my duties and my professionalism, and it's not about how you act. Now, the problem is, in real, these are human beings. They're 18, 19, 20-year-old who are, you know, deprived of sleep and not being particularly well-fed and, and just had to miss. And they're also, by the way, many, there almost nobody in Israel hasn't been touched in a personal way by this tragedy. As well as in Gaza, I'm sure. Whether it's an aunt or an uncle or a college roommate or whoever. So there's always the human impulse to just do vengeance and to dehumanize the enemy. This is why in World War II, when we say Japs and Gooks and those kind of things, Jerry, the Germans, the problem is when you begin to think of these opposition fighters as non-human or subhuman, it, it allows you to create this dualistic moral code. That's what the law of war 
is designed to prevent. It says, I don't care who they are or what they've done. You can never intentionally target civilians. You must warn if circumstances permit. You must do everything feasible, practical, to minimize or eliminate civilian damages. And on and on and on go. The you must apply the proportionality principle. Uh, you must only, the principle of distinction, target your activities only against lawful military targets. Professor, are there... And it just says, these are my duties, irrespective of enemy conflict conduct. Are there hierarchies of war crimes, I suppose, uh, you know, or do certain war crimes justify actions or, or take otherwise criminal actions and be, make them legal in certain instances? Um, no, the only real hierarchy is in the sense of jurisdictional prosecutorial prescriptions. And here I'm speaking specifically about the grave breach provisions of the 1949 Geneva Conventions. As well as in the protocols, there's also this subsidy. They call them grave breaches. Um, now, some people would say that's an adjective, right? Grave breaches, so serious breaches. And those are the treaty provisions that give you, for example, universal jurisdiction. The do all states can prosecute that. Imagine North Koreans prosecuting an American soldier for committing a war crime that we didn't investigate or prosecute they would point to the Geneva Conventions and say it was a grave breach during an international armed conflict. We have a specific treaty-based right to do that, and they would be correct about that. But I tend to think of grave breaches as a noun. It just describes this category of offenses. They're no different and no worse or really no better than all the other offenses, the proportionality offenses, the crime of, I mean, all the other set of crimes. And in particular, in this context, I think Russian occupation law violations in Ukraine and in Crimea, horrendous violations of the law, which in some cases are actually grave breaches, but most cases are not. Those are horrendous violations. Kidnapping the children, you know, horrendous. So in that sense, all war crimes are equally bad because they fundamentally extend the conflict to persons or property who should are absolutely should be protected from the effects of that. That's the that's the fundamental problem. And in that context, there's no distinction. One incident that's gotten the, the, perhaps the most attention from the the Israeli um, military incursion into Gaza involves this hospital attack. Now, you you mentioned that the the evidence suggests that it was actually a misfired. Uh, rocket from from within Gaza, but you know, as a thought experiment, there is an international law prohibiting attacking a hospital. There's also an international law saying you can't conduct military operations in a hospital. What happens when those two combine? Like, let, let's say hypothetically, we're in a world where Hamas is literally staging rockets from a hospital. Well, I mean different hospital, different day, uh, there's video YouTube footage of a Hamas rocket firing an RPG from the entry walkway into a hospital. I mean, so it's not a theoretical, hypothetical question. Um, and the answer, and the same thing happened, by the way, to American forces in Grenada. You're taking fire from a hospital and they return fire. It really becomes a proportionality question and a question of, is there a better way to achieve the military mission, right? 
the the harm that accrues both morally and psychologically from targeting a hospital and the, and the israelis would say we never targeted a hospital we don't target hospitals what we do is we target the people or the facilities that are illegally using those hospitals and the law of war never requires you i mean it's just it sounds weird to say it but it never places an affirmative duty on someone to try to capture somebody as opposed when you're entitled to use lawful force lethal force you're entitled to use lethal force now if you choose not to so that's the situation with hospitals or other protected targets right the the hamas and other terrorists use for example schools the insurgency in iraq use mosques as weapons storage facilities routinely and commonly and and so you have to go through this question of my military objective is to neutralize the ammunition or the command bunker that's stored in that place how do i do it well i can there's a lot of ways of doing it. Um, and it gets to what you were saying earlier. Even if I could legally target that thing. Right. Oftentimes for pragmatic reasons, I won't. Because there's a better way to do it. Or the, or, the politics or the optics or the, the just human tragedy wouldn't be worth it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, in, you know, I think in democracies, there's also the particular, and this is a feature of democracies that, of course, Hamas does not share. Um, neither do the Russians, by the way, there is a particular resonance to this notion that any sovereign authority comes from the people. I mean, this is our constant. We created this, the United States of America, by the people, for the people, um, and on behalf of the people. So there's a particular resonance in the civilian marketplace not just international media, not just propaganda, but the fact that I serve a democracy says I also have to be very conscious of civilian perceptions and the fact that we're not some undisciplined lawless because we're representing those people and the values of those people. And so, again, a pragmatic reason why I might not target the hospital or I might target it in a different way. Um, and, and military commanders are doing these things, again, with imperfect information and battlefield intelligence. Oftentimes it's wrong or inaccurate or incomplete. Weapons fail. I mean, it's not in a perfect technology application. Drones fail. I, I, I'm dependent on the drone to get me, help me get it right. But there's an outage or the Internet is a, what do I do? And you have to make these really hard decisions in real time. And I want to emphasize this. That's why we owe an absolute duty of professional oath when when soldiers or Marines are doing their best to comply with the laws of war as they know them. That's what the law does. It protects them and gives them combatant immunity. We can't try to second guess that. We have to. And now, if they've acted in bad faith, we investigate and we prosecute them. Or if they've intentionally committed crimes, we investigate them and we prosecute them. And the Israelis do this. But what we have to do is be very clear on both sides, that we expect them to comply with the law at all times in all circumstances. But conversely, when they're doing their very, very best under extremely difficult circumstances to comply with the law, we give them that professional latitude to do so. In part because that's, and this is what most lay people don't understand, is that the law of war embeds, implicit, woven into the fabric of this body of law, is that discretion. So, of course, when they exercise that discretion, 
Who are we to second guess? Unless, of course, they acted in bad faith and ignored the rules or intentionally committed those offenses. And that's a hard line sometimes. Professor, you know, have you seen, I guess, in the coverage, and I know you alluded to having worked with the Israeli military in the past and having, you know, some amount of respect for their procedures and protocols, but was there any um, any of the, the strategies or or actions that were being covered in the news where you, where you thought to yourself, okay, well, this is an area where they may need to be extra careful with uh, not not running afoul of the laws of war? Uh, I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is, as I said, the Israelis have had a lot of practice in these urban areas of warning civilians. They've invented a whole array of techniques. Roof knocking is the most famous. They'll drop a little munition on the roof as a warning to the civilians. Well, Hamas is smart. They figured it out. So what they did was build, they didn't have to go outside, and then they would essentially hold those families' human shields. And so sometimes there's a tendency to say, well, we warned, so check. Now let's move on. But remember, you still have to have the duty to minimize or eliminate damage, to apply proportionality. It's, it's, they're all additive, to take all feasible measures to do what's practical, what's pragmatic. So you can't just check the block. The other example would be white phosphorus. Uh, I testified to the Goldstone Commission in Geneva. The Israelis used white phosphorus in urban areas, and there's this long-standing trope. What is white phosphorus, Professor? It's um, a chemical that's typically delivered through artillery shells um, that burns. It's not, but it's a chemical fire. It's not an air and liquid fire. So what it does is it burns human flesh. It burns um, napalm, a similar principle to napalm in Vietnam, um, but it's, it's a chemical fire. White phosphorus typically used to set up a screen and a thick white smoke. So if I'm going to move across an open area and I don't want a machine gun shooting at me, what do I do? I put a big cloud of smoke out there. They can't actually see me. Now, they may shoot blindly, but it also obscures vehicle movements, etc. It is not a war crime to use white phosphorus in civilian areas when I'm using it for a lawful purpose. That simple. If I'm using an incendiary munition um, in a way that endangers civilians, it might be a war crime. And again, these are fine-grained distinctions where another technical reason, and this sounds parochial, it is complicated and the law of war requires as a specific treaty rule that commanders have legal advisors to answer, to help answer these kinds of questions. That's why, because it's complex. How about the withholding of supplies? I mean, this is a, a unique, I mean, not unique in the, in the annals of war, but um, unique in the sense that Israel controls the perimeter of Gaza. And in this case, at some point had cut off water and electricity. Did that strike you as a concern for international law purposes? That's a tough, that's a, that's the, I think the hardest, most difficult, complex decision that's been made. Um, I'm, I'm working on a book now called The Humanitarian Imperative. And the idea is that that law of war and you said bellum and the right, the R2P, what we call the right to protect, always have humanitarian exceptions for food and medicine. Um, the idea, as happened in Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, that babies in incubators are dying 
because you shut off electricity, that's a moral problem and it's a legal problem. If I'd been the Israelis, I would have said, you can come get food at these places in these ways. And we're going to search you on the perimeter and we're going to make sure you're not weapon. And of course, what would Hamas have done? They would have targeted those places. That would have been the right answer to set up, you know, once an area is cleared, electricity is back on. And I think this is a really pragmatic thing. The Israelis are not occupying Gaza. Hamas runs Gaza. But now that they do control parts of Gaza, I think they have a pragmatic duty in the longer term interests of peace to show regular Palestinians living in Gaza, life is better when you're not living under Hamas. You get electricity, you get clean water, you get medical supplies, you can get to the hospitals. And I, you know, there's a degradation in every person I take out of the force to go help Palestinians get to the hospital is one less person or one less vehicle that can join the fight. But that's the strategic imperative here. But that's why you fight a war, is to help set the conditions for peace. And that's part of the conditions for peace, is that is that people eat. Now, there's a separate war crime, which I don't think was violated here. And the war crime is intentionally using starvation as a method of war. Right? The idea is that I, I'm starving everybody just because I want to starve civilians. Like an old school siege of a castle town. Exactly. Um, and the problem is, again, the law has changed. People, people talk about bombing civilians, and they always use the examples from World War II of the Dresden bombings and the Tokyo bombings and Allied bombings that were essentially area bombings. And then lay people would say, well, okay, you're doing indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. That's where that propaganda or those press headlines come from. No, the law requires now today in the year 2023, even in an urban area, I cannot treat the urban area as the target. I have to have a disaggregated, specific targeting decision for each and every specific target within that urban area. That's an example of the law changing from World War II to today. So with respect to sieges, a big siege of a whole area would be totally unlawful. As would, you know, footnote, I'm a law professor, so you got to have a footnote, footnote, the Russians in Syria targeting medical convoys, targeting humanitarian convoys, or the Russians in Ukraine targeting intentionally those things. The Israelis haven't done that. They've tried to facilitate the entry when they could help ensure that it wasn't going to Hamas to facilitate the war effort. You know, take the example of fuel, where you know that hospital generators are being run for fuel. If I were the Israelis, I would have said, I'm going to take fuel to the El Shifa hospital tomorrow. And I'm going to drive down this road at this time, and I want UN observers to come with me, and I want Arab observers from the Arab League to come with me. I'm coming in peace to bring fuel to El Shifa or cooking fuel to this place. And if Hamas violates that, they're doing it in front of the entire world in the Arab League. But call their bluff. Make them do it. Um, they did cut off food and electricity in the early days, but, you know, they, they began to very quickly restore, for example, communications technology and, and fuel and et cetera. One last um, specific crime involves kidnapping. And you mentioned kidnapping is never permissible under international law. It is a war crime. But given that, are there still 
obligations that uh, is that crime compounded if the person kidnapped is treated poorly? Um, I, I guess I'm just confused on how to interact under uh, an entirely illegal uh, action, and and then how did the negotiators uh, participate and and try and create a resolution? Yeah, that's why you call a law professor. Um, the the correct legal term is outrages on personal dignity. So the the initial a priori crime of kidnapping is then compounded by, for example, things like sexual violence, things like even basic human rights, like depriving that person of the right to practice their religion. So no, there's never excuse, and it's it's always compounded. Adequate food, the right to practice your religion, the right to, and the big one that gets me, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Hamas is absolutely compounding their violations by not allowing the ICRC access. And the ICRC operates on a confidential basis. Their, their job is to just be nonpartisan, to be un, unbiased, and just act to protect the interests of the people. That's why you don't see the ICRC out making public statements. They just kind of stay low and stay non-controversial. As part of the truce agreement, Hamas agreed to let the ICRC visit with every other hostage, which they're now violating, according to press reports. You know? And I suspect that Hamas is so good at the propaganda, if they were allowing the ICRC to visit all the rest of the hostages, and there, you know, the ICRC does what they do. They take letters from home. They take birthday cards. They take food. They check to make sure you're not being tortured or sexually abused. That's what they do as the independent, impartial, apolitical observer, because you got to have somebody, if you're in those circumstances, whose only interest is your personal human, human dignity, your personal welfare. And both sides have that obligation here. Professor, I know that you have actually um, a lecture that you're about to give. Before we let you go, is there anything that you are seeing in the news that's kind of jumping out at you as, wow, they've got this international law stuff backwards? Well, I mean, I, we talked about this earlier, but the duty of all states to prosecute alleged war criminals, to fully investigate, which is derivative of the individual soldier and the individual commander's duty. That's why in the American and the Israeli military, if you receive an unlawful order, you have a duty to disobey that order, right? And so as a result, there's a duty, an affirmative duty, mandate to investigate offenses and to collect facts and to collect evidence. And then a collateral duty where the evidence shows that there's there's a good faith basis to charge that. You either charge it in the International Criminal Court uh, because the ICC does have jurisdiction over crimes committed inside Gaza, not inside Israel, but inside Gaza, um, or in the domestic courts or in the court of some other, some other country. Um, and one of the problems here is this notion that Hamas has and I talked about this earlier, combatant immunity. Everything they do is criminal. But on the flip side, just because what they did was criminal doesn't mean that the Israelis can do anything they want to do. And this is one of the great myths is that the Israelis don't care about the law. That's actually not true in my experience. They care a great deal about the law. They do 
really incredible things to try to comply with the law, not perfectly. So from the Israeli side, what I would like to see is more transparency. But that's a myth that they don't care about the law and that there's, they're treating Arabs as second-class citizens. If you read some of the protests, you'll say there's a genocide going on in, in Gaza. That's simply not true as a factual or legal matter. There's no genocide on the ground conducted by the IDF inside Gaza. Um, there's an armed conflict governed by the laws of war, albeit imperfectly at times. And where it's imperfect, they have the duty to investigate and to disclose that and to share evidence to get it prosecuted where it's appropriate. Professor, thank you so much for your time. This conversation, I believe, is truly invaluable, um, and I appreciate you squeezing us in today. I appreciate your time. Um, I think it's important for people to really get to the granular details here and try to figure out what the law is and not just to follow the headlines or the big picture things, to try to figure it out in good faith. And on the flip side, I would say we have a duty as citizens to ensure that those who are representing us respect and comply with this body of law. That's what it's all about. For more Legal Explainers and interviews with the Titans of Law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.